And that is our prayer. That the Spirit of God will be poured out upon us. That God will breathe upon us. That we will be used as instruments of righteousness. I will tell you, the only hope for any person, any individual, any city, town, nation, or the only hope for the world is to be found in the Lord Jesus Christ. So, happy July the 4th. I'm glad that you are here this morning. I'm glad that we gather as the people of God to allow God to speak to us through His Word. Go ahead and open your Bibles to the book of Acts. And we are picking up in the text that... uh, Stephen read earlier in the service today, um, we started in verse 4, the the chapter actually begins with a shift in what's taking place in Jerusalem. The churches have been started, the apostles have preached, and now there are thousands of new believers, all of Jewish background and history and origin, that are there in Jerusalem who have come to know Christ as their Savior continuing to worship house to house and to worship and be fed as they gather in the temple and outside of the temple there. The kingdom of God is growing and expanding. This is an apostolic transitional time when the apostles are being sent with, if you will, the keys to the kingdom. The establishment, this new relationship with God called the church. And the church is God's plan to bring glory to himself and to Uh, save those who are lost, to be those who faithfully proclaim the gospel. And yet, after Stephen's stoning, and if you're curious about that, we went over that over the last few weeks. We've had three weeks where we looked at the life of this man named Stephen. And we call him Stephen the martyr. He gave his life proclaiming the truth of God to people who were not wanting to listen and were not wanting to hear. And after his stoning, then there came this persecution, and it was led by this young man named Saul of Tarsus, who, uh, who was very uh, enthusiastic, very driven as a Pharisee, uh, as a Jew, to hold to. He didn't want change. He certainly didn't believe in, in this new movement, believed it was disruptive to the temple worship that God had established. And so he began to persecute the Christians. He began going house to house, knocking on doors, grabbing people who professed Christ, who, by the way, those people did not deny Christ. They professed Christ, even under persecution. And he cast them in prison, and there were various types of persecution. But it was harsh enough that the believers were scattered. They went out of Jerusalem, and they went to a variety of different places. Today we're going to meet another person that we would call a champion of the church. His name is Philip, and his title is the evangelist philip the evangelist now i didn't give him that title i'm just affirming that title as a matter of fact in acts chapter 21 the apostle paul is traveling to jerusalem really for the last time that we're aware of you guys will be familiar that led by the holy spirit paul was making his way church to church as he went to jerusalem and as he was traveling he went to troas he went to uh, um in several cities along the way, but he came to Caesarea, and there he stayed in the house of Philip the Evangelist, one of the seven. So Philip is called Philip the Evangelist even there, and we learn a little bit about him. We learn that he has four daughters who are not yet married, who are prophesying. We learn that he's a witness there, but we will see him and his characteristics and, and, and how God used him massively in the life of the church. So go ahead and find Acts chapter 8. And we'll pick up in verse 4. While you're doing that, and as we get underway, I've got a couple of questions for you. Uh, This was kind of brought to my mind afresh and anew. Uh, We have a run group 
uh, that is sponsored by a local store, and there's a running coach, Ashley, actually, she's here with us, and so this is kind of a no boundaries couch to 5k program there are walkers and run walkers and runners uh, and I, I i get to be a part of that group and uh, of course um, ashley being a good coach starts by saying what are your goals and so she hands out goal sheets and everyone is is requested go ahead and write down what your goals are i've written some down by the way ashley remind me to turn those in but uh I thought that is an excellent question and one that we need to be continually evaluating. And I'm going somewhere with this, so bear with me. What are you investing your life in? What are your life goals? What, what is the purpose? What is the highest thing that you are pursuing in life? What, do you, what are your priorities? And these can change and often do change with the stage of life and the circumstances that you find in. I've had people who have suggested or I have thought through some of these and through conversations with others, I've heard people say, I want a career that impacts the world for the better. Particularly millennials want a life that matters. Or I want a job that funds my ability to provide for my family and to enjoy the good things of life. There are those who may have a highest goal. I want to raise children that have a good life and that get the most out of life. Some people's goals are maybe a little less lofty. You kind of back up a little bit and you say, oh, I want a nice house in the city. Or, "Mm, I don't want a nice house in the city, I want a nice house in the country with acreage and trees, room for a garden. Some goals may be as simple as I want college for my kids. I want my kids to do well in school, to go to college, to set themselves up for being successful a goal of financial security. I talked to a guy not too long ago who said he wanted to shoot a 68 on Furman's golf course. He felt if he could ever just shoot a 68 on Furman's golf course, he will have arrived and feel like his life was, was had some success. Uh, you may want to catch a 15-pound bass on four-pound test, and that would be a fun thing to engage in. Had a teacher... Uh, a couple of months ago, tell me, when we were talking about goals and, and what the purpose of even teaching and education back when we were going through the COVID thing and the teachers are having to adjust and adjust they did and adjust so well. But this teacher told me she wanted to teach so well that her students did more than excel at their subject. They were equipped for whatever would come, equipped for life. There are many who have as a goal to succeed in business, uh, to have a business that is economically viable or economically successful, or a business that creates a family and environment that's good for the employees and good for the community. Uh, Of course, when you think about running, uh, there are certain goals that people want to be fit, people want to be healthy, people want to be able to function throughout life, or those who want to contribute to others' fitness and health, uh, whether it be in the medical field or another field that impacts others positively. Um, in, in talking to Christians, and, and I, I'm talking to Christians now here, I want to ask you, what are your goals? Why are you doing what you're doing? What, what are the things that you are actively pursuing and why? And it is good for us to step back from time to time to look at our calendar and to look at our bank balance and our checkbook and 
check register to see where the money is going and to ask ourselves why. What am I investing in? What am I giving my attention to? What am I focusing on? Because there's a very strong reality that we believers need to recognize, and that is that a person who has not yet come to Christ, a lost person, a person who has not recognized their need of the Savior, a person who uh, has not seen in the Lord Jesus Christ their only hope in salvation, that individual, their hopes, goals, dreams, and aspirations, and a believer who has recognized that we are lost apart from Christ, and we've humbled ourselves to him, and we've surrendered and submitted ourselves to him in totality and completeness, and he has regenerated us and made us into something completely new, that our hopes, dreams, goals, and aspirations should be different. There should be a distinct difference. Now, it doesn't mean that the things that I was just talking about were bad things or the things you should not hope for, but there are things that we as believers have as our aspiration, as our goals, as our our life. The priorities of the affections of our heart matter. When we come to Christ, we no longer live for ourselves. We're no longer our own. We are bought with a price, the precious shed blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our desire should be and must be to glorify God, to to please God in all that we do, to enjoy God. We should reflect the heart passion of the Apostle Paul who said, my hunger, my, my passion is to know Him, to know the Lord Jesus Christ in every aspect of Him, including His suffering, and to be intimate with Him deeper and deeper and deeper. We should have as our desire a goal to to be pleasing to our Father, the one who washed us and cleansed us and made us his own. And the things that we want to, that we determine to do should be determined by our overarching goal, a higher goal, so that God is pleased in our life to bring God joy. We should desire to be vessels fit for the master's use, as Paul described to the young preacher Timothy. That there are vessels for uh, various types of vessels, wood and precious vessels. Some for common use and some for elevated use, but we should all desire to be clean vessels fit for the master's use. We should be like David who says, there's one thing I want. You guys remember Psalm 27? One thing have I desired. One thing that drives me. One thing that drives every aspect of my life. And that is to dwell in the presence of God. To recognize that He is my foundation. And He surrounds me. And He covers me. And I am complete in Him. Does that sound really lofty? Does that sound unattainable? It's like something we cannot reach out. We'll tell you that in every life, we do have focus and goals. I'm goal-oriented, by the way. I'm not saying that goals are a bad thing. You should have financial goals. You should have relational goals. You should have health goals. You should have dietary goals. How about that? We'll, go, we'll, we'll get a little meddlesome here. You should have goals that relate to every aspect of your life. I think you need to be aiming for a purpose. But all of those goals are subject to, my goal is to glorify God, and therefore... We establish these intermediary goals. And every intermediary goal is subject to the will of God. Does that make sense? Are you with me? Why does this matter? Well, this matters because Philip's life was completely changed. 
We don't know a lot about Philip and a lot about his background. We know he was a Jew. We know he was a devout Jew, and we know he was a devout Jew who knew the Scriptures and knew the Old Testament. And we know that he came to know the Lord Jesus Christ as a Savior. We know that probably under the preaching of Peter, either in the temple courtyard or outside of the temple at Pentecost, in one of those experiences, this man realized that God had answered all of the Old Testament prophecies in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that that man that had been crucified on a hill outside of Jerusalem just a few months ago, that man was the Savior. He was the promised Messiah, promised since Genesis 12. The promised salvation of the people of God. Jesus Christ. And as Peter said, and as we just sang a moment ago, there is no other name under heaven whereby men can be saved. This man placed his faith and trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. And it was evident in his character. When there was a trouble in the church and they needed some leaders to rise to the front to take up some specific responsibilities. Sure, they chose Stephen, but they also chose Philip. And Acts chapter 6 is where we first meet Philip. Philip, one of the seven. Philip the evangelist. When the, when the persecution comes, then Philip goes. As a matter of fact, we'll just pick up there uh, in Acts chapter 8 with verse 4. Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. The first thing, and again, if you're following along and you, and you want to take notes, I want, I want to encourage you to do this. We need to, as every believer, do what they did and what they modeled. And that is we need to embrace evangelism as every believer's priority. To exalt the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, to speak the truth about Jesus, to help people understand that they are in need of a Savior and that Jesus is the Savior. He is the way, the truth, and the life. And there's no one that comes to the Father except through Him. To help people recognize that having financial security or having solid relationships or at least solid for the time being or having this or having that, whatever goal, aspiration they have... There is an emptiness that cannot be filled with anything other than the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the Savior. He is the only place of completeness, of complete soul satisfaction, of complete godly contentment as we rest in Him. And every believer has that privilege. These Christians got scattered. They got persecuted and they left because of the persecution. And as they went to where they were going, they could have said, it didn't work out so good for us back there. We'd better be quiet where we're going. And yet they didn't. They went as evangelists. They went as missionaries. They went as believers who had been transformed and who wanted others to experience the same thing. Now Philip goes and he goes to Samaria. Interesting choice, isn't it? To me, it seems to be an interesting choice. Why? Because Jews didn't go to Samaria. The Samaritans, years before, had been related. They were kind of distant cousins to the Jews. They had been some of the tribes, but they had been some of the northern tribes that did not remain faithful to temple worship, to following the law of God. And they intermarried and intermingled with the natives of the north. 
They established even another place to worship so they wouldn't have to come to Jerusalem. They went up on Mount Gerizim and, and built their own place of worship. The Jews looked down upon them culturally. They saw them as half-breeds, as unfaithful to the oracles of God. And the Jews were condescending to them. And yet in Philip we have a man moved by God to cross a geographic barrier. He goes down from Jerusalem. By the way, he's going north, but Jerusalem's on a hill. So he's going down from Jerusalem as he goes north, northwest, to Samaria. And he goes to a place where he would not be culturally comfortable. The Samaritans, to a great extent, were a superstitious people. We'll find out a little bit more about that in a moment. But he goes and he testifies of the Lord Jesus Christ. I love the phrasing, he preaches Christ to them. Now, Philip, as a good and godly man, embraced the call to be an evangelist. I just want to remind you, it's yours too. If you are here and you have been saved, if you're here or not, if you're a believer, if you have surrendered your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, you have a mission to be engaged in. We, as a church, have a mission to be engaged in. And it is important, I think, that we recognize that the most important people in our vision and in our mission and in our mindset and in our ministry as a congregation are the people who are not in this room. The people who have not yet heard the gospel or not yet responded to the gospel. We have a mission to make Christ known. It is every believer's priority. The Christians that were scattered, Philip in particular, and of course I love the fact that he goes to the uncomfortable place. Now, his message is verified. His message is verified by signs and wonders and the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and they saw the signs that he did here are some of the signs that he did unclean spirits came out of many who were possessed crying with a loud voice and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed so there was much joy in that city and again, we're going to come back next week because there's a uh, doctrinal issue that comes up in this passage of Scripture about the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. But I want to start with us recognizing here that Philip has been gifted by the Holy Spirit with the same gifts the apostles had. The gift of casting out demons, the gift of bringing healing, and the reason that he was given those gifts, particularly in this arena and in this area, was to verify that this was God's preacher, that he had the sanction of a holy God. They had no New Testament scripture that they could compare it to, and this is that transitional point where God gifts them and supernaturally gifts them with the ability to break natural law as a means of verifying that this message is from the Creator God. And as He works those miracles, and He is preaching Christ, and those miracles attest to the fact that what He says is true, that a message is from God. And they listen, and they hear, and many respond, and they repent. Now, as they respond and repent, you need to look at the first, and there's much joy from the healing, and much joy, of course, from the gospel being proclaimed. We'll come back to that in just a moment. We need to recognize something else. The first word of verse eight, or verse 9 is the word 
but, but. All right, that is a contrasting conjunction. But, it's important because we learn about one of these converts. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city, meaning not that he used to do it and he had stopped, but he had been doing it for a long time. So this is Simon Magus, Simon the magician, and his magic, he had amazed the people of Samaria. And what had he told them? What was his teaching? Saying that he himself was somebody great. And they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. And that doesn't mean short to tall or small to big. That means from all ages and from, from all backgrounds. They, they paid attention to Simon Magus saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time, he had been for a long time, he had amazed them with his magic. All right, so I want to introduce you to this guy, Simon Magus. Again, a superstitious people, and yet this is, he's not an aberration. There were many of these uh, false teachers, if you will, many of these magicians who, as their income, as their livelihood, some of them were, were charlatans, and they were con men, and they were sleight of hand. Some of them certainly were aided and abetted by demonic forces seeking to engage people in a religion that is not the worship of God. But this guy had a large following, and he was able to do miracles, and he was there for a long time. Justin Martyr, one of the early church fathers, writing on this text, tells us that Simon Magus was so respected and so well-known, even though he was from Samaria, he had such a broad-ranging reputation that even in Rome, in Italy, there was a, a statue built of him in his honor, calling him the great of God, the great one of God. You see his reputation, he's a false teacher, demonically aided in all probability, certainly, uh, at worst, a charlatan, but he had amazed the people with his magic. He was great, he wanted people to know he was great, probably an incipient Gnosticist. I have knowledge you don't have, I have power you don't have, come to me. It was his source of income and his source of wealth. And Philip comes, and what happens when Philip comes? Philip comes preaching Jesus. Philip comes doing signs and wonders. That's what Simon was, that was his job. That's what he was famous for. And now Philip, in the power of God, we're seeing the paralyzed get up and walk. We're seeing the the possessed become made clean. We're seeing evidence of the power of God, and he's preaching Jesus Christ, he's preaching salvation by grace, through faith, in Christ alone, God's promised Messiah. And people are hearing and people are responding and get Simon's attention. When they believed, when he began preaching, the people believed Philip as he preached the good news about the kingdom of God and Jesus Christ. And they began to be baptized. They began to follow in believers' baptism. We believe As a demonstration of our belief, we will be baptized in the name of Christ, both men and women. And here's what we learn about Simon at this point. Even Simon himself believed, and after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. So, is this something to celebrate? A little bit of a trick question here. Philip preaches... Here's this magician 
who has called himself the Great One of God, who does magic, what we would call miracles, things that we can't explain. And the people have followed. Now Philip comes preaching Jesus. People are responding to Jesus. Philip has amazing power, God's power on display. And Simon sees it and he believes it. He knows it's legitimate and he knows it's real. He believes. And, and as part of the crowd, as part of the demonstration of his belief, he is baptized, a public testimony. I'm signing up. I'm joining in. I want to be a part of this. And he follows along, and his preoccupation or his interest in what is taking place is not, in this text, the message of Christ, his need for salvation or God's grace. It's the power on display to the miracles that were performed by Philip. Here's what I want us to grasp. And I have been asked, and different people in different commentaries and different conversations through the years, was Simon Magus saved? Because what happens is, when, when, the, when the Christians in Jerusalem hear about Philip and his, and his work in Samaria, and how that God is working, and how there's joy in the city because people are believing and being baptized, they send Peter, and they send John as apostles. And Peter and John go to verify the work. And the Holy Spirit does a, another Pentecost-type Event where there's this outpouring of the Holy Spirit, like there was an outpouring for the first time at Pentecost on the Christians in Jerusalem. This is a milestone event, and we're going to talk about the role of the Holy Spirit and why the Spirit was with Peter and did not come with Philip's preaching next Sunday. And it's going to be a very significant thing that we've got to grasp and that we've got to understand. But for today, here's the point. When they came to verify what was taking place, they laid hands on the people and then the Holy Spirit was poured out upon them like it was at Pentecost. And it was poured out upon them in demonstration, visible demonstration. I believe the same visible demonstration that was at Pentecost. The, the, the ability to speak in languages, uh, possibly the sound of a, of a mighty rushing wind. Something that was visibly displaying that now there's a new relationship, not only for the Jews, but also for the Samaritans. We'll see another place in Acts chapter 19 that happens. Again, that's next week. Just hold on. We'll get to that when we get there. But when, when, when Simon sees this, and he sees the signs that accompany the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, he goes to them and he says, listen, I want to be able to do that. And I'll give you money. I will pay you for the privilege of being able to dispense the Holy Spirit. Anybody have a problem with that? Peter had a problem with it. As a matter of fact, we can see the response, verse 14. When Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. Peter's problem with that request. Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. And then there's an exclamation mark. It is really hard sometimes to convey tone in printed text. Would you agree with that? You ever get a text message that had an ambiguous statement you didn't know if they were happy or sad? If they were angry or content? That's happened to me. Of course, I always assume the worst. I know you don't. 
Well, here's what we miss in this, in the strength of the language that can be conveyed, actually, in the word choices in the Greek language. And that is, Peter's angry. He is angry. You ought to look this translation up in the J.B. Phillips translation of the New Testament, or look it up. Eugene Peterson copies uh, kind of Philip, Dr. Phillips in his the message when he says this. Literally, Peter says, take your silver and go to perdition. Take your silver and go to destruction. You, your silver can burn because you've missed it. You think you can buy what's taking place here. And this is a condemnation in the harshest of terms. Listen, people have asked me, do you think Simon would say, well, I'm going to have to go with Peter here. Peter said, you've neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. And Peter goes on to call him to repentance in verse 22. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. And here's how he describes the condition of his heart. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So here's what, at this point in this text, in this life, we know. Simon Magus, who it says believed, who it says was baptized, who it says continued with Philip, was not a believer, was not saved, was not repentant, was not part of the family of God. He looked like it. He seemed to be on board He joined the church. But there were some things that had stopped him from experiencing God. The the first one, and I, I really need to be a little quicker here, so listen fast. The first one was his pride. Can I tell you that the Bible tells you that the Lord resists the proud? That the pride, the prideful have no part in the kingdom of God? that Simon Magus viewed himself as great, taught others that he was great, and there's nothing in this text that indicates the least amount of humility or the recognition of his sinfulness or of his need for a savior. He saw the apostles as, as, as competition. He saw them as maybe someone he could work alongside of, and then he thought he could just be co-opted by them and join with them and gain this power but he had the wrong self-image he had the wrong spirit he never humbled himself before a holy God and the absolute truth the absolute thing that will keep any person regardless of whether they believe you guys know James teaches us that the devils in hell believe and tremble yet they're not saved There are people that you will share the gospel with and they will say, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I believe that Jesus died on a cross. I believe that he was a real person. And yet that belief has not worked its way to a transformed heart. It's not brought about brokenness and repentance. It's not not brought about the change of regeneration that only God accomplishes as his Holy Spirit works in someone's life. And so... Uh, the first thing that we see is pride kept me from this. You guys remember Luke 18, the story of the, of the, of the Pharisee 
and the tax collector. I thank you, Father, that I'm not like him. And then the tax collector, the wicked sinner, who beat his chest, not even worthy to look up and ask God for, for cleansing and repentance. And Jesus says, that one, the humble one, goes away justified. There's no salvation apart from humility, recognition of sin. We have no evidence of Simon. Sure, he had the right look, and he was in the right place, and he was doing the right things, but he also had, had the wrong understanding of salvation. He thought salvation was external. Salvation was something that you added to your life. He saw the miracles and the moving of the Holy Spirit as a commodity he wanted to add to his repertoire as a, as a spiritual leader. Sure, he was happy to do his work and sign up with them. But again, this was financially motivated, reputation motivated. This was all external to what was taking place in his heart. And so as we embrace the priority of sharing the good news of Jesus Christ, you need to be prepared because this can be really disheartening sometimes that there are going to be people who are false converts. You need to acknowledge that there are people who are going to sign up. They're going to join the church. They're going to look pretty good. They're going to be fairly moral people, and yet there will not be people who have been transformed by the power of God. And that will become evident in their attitudes. It becomes evident in their behavior. It becomes evidence in their belief, in their doctrine. And frankly, it becomes evidence in the lack of fruitfulness. The fruit of the Spirit becomes absent in their life. The fruit of regeneration as it is passed on to other people, it's, it's missing. The power of God is done in their life because they're not one of God. We need to recognize that God is sovereign in salvation. That simple mental assent that even the devils in hell tremble because they believe but they're not saved. True repentance requires the right view of yourself, lost and in need of a Savior. It requires the yieldedness of your life. What we talked about back in the message when we looked at Acts chapter 5, the estrecha, uh, not only the metanoia, the repentance, but the estrecha, the turning and coming all the way back. True repentance requires the yielding of your life to the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now what happens... When we embrace our priority as evangelism, and we have people who profess Christianity, but there's no fruit of Christianity in their life. There's no humility. There's no dependence upon God. It's as though they are simply using Christianity either as a crutch to improve their life, or they're using Christianity as a means of enhancing some other aspect of their life. Well, we do what Peter did. To Simon, we call them to repentance. We call them to repentance. It's what Peter told Simon, verse 22, Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Now, when Peter called him to repentance, we have Simon's response. And again, I wish we had this in an audio recording. I wish we knew exactly what the tone of this statement was. Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Was that a genuine call? Where Simon was saying, I hear what you're saying. I don't want that to happen to me. 
Was this Simon being moved toward repentance? Was it a sarcastic, caustic statement? Well, then you pray for me so that this doesn't happen. I think it was probably a request, but I want to tell you that this is not the evidence. This is not evidence of repentance. We have in this story a false convert who sows discord in the body. We have in the next story that Philip is engaged in that we will look at a, a, a true convert, one who comes to Christ and is radically transformed. Now, it can be challenging and frustrating when you talk to people about Jesus and, and you see no life, life transformation. It can be really, really hard to love somebody enough that you take the risk and the chance of going through a gospel presentation, of identifying that all is sin and comes short of the glory of God, and there's none righteous, no, not one. That we are all guilty before God. That Roman, Isaiah 59.2 says that, that our sins have separated between us and God. That we can't save ourselves. That we aren't good enough to get to God. That we are separated from God and that we need a Savior. The end result, if we continue in that, in that uh, condition, is, is perdition. It's hell. It's destruction. It's where Peter told Simon he was headed because of his wrong attitude, because of his own pride, because of his lack of yieldedness and repentance. And when we come to Jesus in repentance and faith, then he transforms us. He makes us new. He's the one who grants us repentance. He's the one that draws, that turns the lights on. There's no, no sense here that Simon had this acknowledgement of who God was and, 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 and who Jesus was and that Jesus is the only one to be saved. And so when we proclaim the gospel and we see people who are uh, not responding to the gospel, not responding to the gospel in repentance and faith, sometimes for weeks and months or days or years, sometimes we can be very, very frustrated. But I want you to know a few things. And I'll be quick, but listen. We just prayed this morning that God would heal our land. There's only one answer to the healing of any land. And that is the grace of God put on display through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. The world's greatest need, America's greatest need is to be confronted with their sin and to be presented with their Savior and for God to divinely and providentially and sovereignly turn the light on to hearts and minds. You want unity? And, and I have to tell you, we do pray for unity. But folks, we pray for unity around truth. We don't pray for unity at the expense of truth. We pray for peace, but we want peace that is found in the blood of Christ and in the person of Christ. And the peace that we pray for is peace with God through the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. The only hope for this country or any country is Jesus Christ and Him alone. Amen? So do you want to fight for the good of your country? Recognize that your citizenship is in heaven. And be faithful to pursue the goals that he establishes 
particularly glorifying him by proclaiming his truth as a priority in your life. Recognizing that not everybody's going to respond, but that's okay because God sovereignly moves and God sovereignly works and he is the one who saves and there are many who he brings to repentance. I don't know what it was like in Samaria when Philip began to preach and began to do miracles. I don't know how the people responded. I know that Simon was at first probably challenged and then chagrined and then thought, well, no, there's something real here. And he tried to be a hanger-on and use it to his own advantage. But I'll tell you what I believe according to this text. I believe that Jesus was preached and that the Holy Spirit moved and worked in the hearts of those people and that there were many who believed. And they didn't just believe with their head, but they wholeheartedly surrendered themselves to Christ. They followed the Lord in believers' baptism. And there was a demonstration of the powerful moving of God in the lives of people. And all of Samaria, all the vast majority of people there, the whole area of Samaria, rejoiced because of the lives that were transformed in the person of Jesus. We'll see in a few minutes. No, we'll see in a couple of weeks. An Ethiopian, a man from Africa, that Philip shared the gospel with. And we'll learn the depth of his rejoicing and the impact, at least to some extent, of his work as God transformed his life. And so, when we call, uh, call the evangelism, is almost always a, 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 a call that makes us feel some sort of inadequacy or guilt or we're not doing enough. But it's also to be motivated intentionally by the promise of joy. The promise of joy of obedience. The promise of joy that God still changes lives today. The kingdom of God, by the way, comes one person at a time. One person at a time. Father, I pray that we will be a people who work for your glory. That we will, like Philip, be known as people who preach Christ and him crucified. I pray, Father, that you will use us in our Jerusalem and our Judea and our Samaria. I pray that you will give us the same passion that Philip the Evangelist had, that we will hunger to see people come to know you, whether they be in this city or this state or not, whether they be in this country or not, that we will be willing to go where you lead, to be always saying yes to the highest priority, and that is to give glory to you, to please you, that you will use us to make your name great, And that through our speech, our proclamation of your word, our proclamation of your truth, that people will come to know you as Savior and Lord. They will see their need of salvation. And rather than being self-sufficient or prideful, they will respond in humility and brokenness over their sin. And respond in repentance from their sin. And then respond in faith by trusting you wholeheartedly with their life, casting their lives and their care upon you. Father, you are the God who saves. You are the only one who saves. You are our only hope. And I'm grateful that we have found our hope in you. But Father, there are so many here in our town and on our streets and our families who have no hope, don't have this hope, don't know that they don't have this hope. And how will they hear unless we tell them? 
How will they? I am aware that you are sovereign and all-powerful. And I am aware that you have caused us to be uh, ambassadors for Christ. To be those who get to speak and proclaim the good news of Jesus Christ. Father, let us not miss the opportunity. But be glorified in us as we walk in obedience to you. And Father, we know that the only healing in our land is the healing that comes from the great physician as you save us from our sin and draw us to yourself. In your name I pray. Amen. Let's stand together, shall we?